Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we get into the podcast, a word from the sponsors of this episode, Chargebee. Chargebee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS and subscription startups, such as Hopin, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is particularly powerful for European startups to navigate complex issues such as tax compliances, invoicing, and billing regulations. The product also enables you to experiment with different pricing models and also to localize the pricing and checkout experiences. So check them out at chargebee.com. And now let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Henrik Kilberg, who is Group CEO of Aways, Europe's leading managed vacation rental and holiday parks brand. Prior to joining Aways, Henrik spent 12 years at Expedia as part of their global leadership team, where he led a variety of business lines in London, Beijing, Hong Kong, and San Francisco. Hendrik's specialty is in growing global businesses and building high-performance teams, and that is going to be the focus of our episode today, something that I'm sure is very critical for most startups in any stage of growth. Welcome, Hendrik. Thank you. I wanted to start off in the travel industry. I know that you've had a very long career focused in the travel industry, starting, I think, in 1999 with MrJet.com. And I'm curious to hear, was that just by chance or was it by choice that you decided to specialize in the travel industry? It was definitely by chance initially and in the later years, much more by choice. When I started with travel and started working with the internet back in 1999, we had the original, the first wave of that then became the internet bubble just before the millennium. My dream was always to work eventually to end up with an e-commerce player that sold goods. That was what I thought I would be ending up as. I thought that would be a more sort of a real company than, than being involved in travel. But I've ended up becoming a very happy travel agent for time. Talking about e-commerce, you wrote a thesis about online marketing in 1994. Amazon was just getting started. So this concept that e-commerce online would take off was quite nascent. Why did you decide to do your thesis on that? It was just at the beginning of when the internet was getting commercialized. Connections at the time were so very poor. Wi-Fi didn't even exist. We had fixed terminals at the university. I just thought it was an extremely exciting new area. And there was lots of things going on. There was the original Boo.com, the fashion store that started online. There were portals. You couldn't really do much at the time. The search engines were pretty bad. But I was fascinated about the disruptive power of the internet and what it could do to commerce. And that's why I wrote the thesis about it, which was super fun to write. I got most of it wrong, but a few things I think I got right in terms of payments being very important for the success of e-commerce. There was no books about it. So I had to read about how postal mail companies did their marketing and, and how that worked and, and then translate it over to the internet. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that's right. There was no Google. Interestingly enough, there was a Google but it was super small and only a few nerds knew about Google's search engine. We actually built a search engine called .se or .se in Swedish, where we had two or three guys manually indexing all the Swedish websites. And that search engine was a better search engine than the AltaVistas of the time that were the 
sort of more commercial search engines. I mean, it's a crazy idea today that you would have humans rank everything on the internet, but that's exactly what we did. Wow, that is really taking someone down the memory lane when it comes to the internet. Going back to the travel industry, given the major upheaval now that has happened to the whole travel industry due to COVID, I would love to hear your thoughts on where you see the future of the travel industry. What do you think has changed permanently? What do you think will go back? There's many components of travel. You have group travel, corporate travel, and, and, and leisure travel. On the corporate side, I think because of what we're doing now, we're having a Zoom call, I think some of that will, will go away. Bill Gates thought half of it would go away. I think that's probably a bit on the aggressive side. But I think a big portion of corporate travel will change because of remote working and people being able to do things over a distance. But I also still think on the corporate side that the meetings are important and getting teams together and, and client meetings, et cetera, are very important. On the leisure side, travel is almost a basic human need once you reach a certain level of wealth in a society. So as the middle classes grow, as GDP grows in a country, people want to travel. And it's always been growing in line with GDP. It will continue to grow. I think people are have an insatiable demand for spending more quality time with their loved ones, exploring uh, the world, exploring the, their local countries. So yeah, I'm extremely optimistic about the future of travel. And I, I, I think it, it will definitely keep growing for many, many decades to come. What would you say are some of the opportunities you see for startups that may be focused in the travel industry? There are very few new ideas that I've seen uh, in travel over the past 20 years. I think that the problem with travel from a startup perspective is that because it's so exciting, because people love traveling and because entrepreneurs tend to start companies solving a problem they encountered at some point in their life. And, and travel is still fraught with problems because it's moving humans from point A to point B. Uh, a lot of things can go wrong. So a lot of people encounter a problem and they think that, wow, I'm going to go solve this and in, in, in travel. That's not to say you, you shouldn't have a, a, a travel startup, but I think it's important to be very focused on the area you want to solve in travel. A lot of the travel startups that have done well, they are, with a few exceptions, they are less about a great grand new big idea and much more about being extremely good on the executing side. For example, Booking.com, they didn't do anything new. They sold hotel rooms to consumers, but um, Booking was a, a competitor of, of ours when I worked at Expedia in, in my past, but they had extremely good execution. The website was very slick and smooth, and that allowed Booking to become one of the largest travel companies in, in the world. Equally, Expedia started as number three in the US. It was behind Site 59, Travelocity. Even in the UK, last minute was bigger. But some of the way in which Expedia solved the problem of how to sell a flight ticket was just done in a better way than the, the previous competitors. And that allowed Expedia to become the market leader in, in the flight se segments of online travel agencies. So a lot in travel is less about an incredibly sexy new idea and much more about being great at, at the executing part. Who do you see as leaders today in the online travel sector that you think they've really got that balance of vision, strategy, and execution, right? Other than Aways, I'm sure, but anyone else? I do think that Airbnb does it very well. I think Brian Chesky and the team, they are one of the few examples that I've seen like, well, this is a new idea because they basically started with room sharing, which is a very complex problem to solve and then moved from a small room into a house or an apartment and then bigger houses. I think they have a good understanding of the, the marketplace, which is both catering to owners and guests. 
We at Waze do the same thing when we talk about managed vacation rental. But I also admire big companies. I think there's another few good ones out there. I mean, Tour Radar does great things for if you want to go on an exciting tour somewhere around the world. Peak.com is another great company when it comes to experiences. And of course, Booking and Expedia, they're big behemoths now, but they do it well. When I looked at your LinkedIn profile and just talking to you before our call, I was just amazed by how much you have accomplished and how much you've done in your career, especially managing, building, growing companies in the travel industry. And I wanted to get a little deeper into how you've managed to do it. And I thought we could start with Expedia, where you spent, I think, nearly 12 years having some really meaty roles, everything from owning the entire lodging business line to managing affiliate networks, to running Elong, which is the second largest online travel agency in China. I thought we could start off by looking at that time in Expedia. What do you think has allowed you to be successful in all these different roles? When you take on a new business line, what is your style of figuring out what to do, what to focus on, and what not to focus on? When I joined Expedia, it must be said that it was like a startup. We were, we were 15, 16 people in the London office. I flew over to the US to meet a few people a couple of weeks in. We were in the Space Needle in Seattle. And, and over a beer, I was introduced to Rich Barton, who's the CEO, who now actually started Glassdoor, and he's the CEO of Zillow now. Um, also with Lloyd Frank, who's a co-founder of Zillow as well. And between those two guys, they were asking me for my opinion about what we should do in Europe. And I was three weeks in, I've not turned 30 yet. And, and it was very much a startup feel from that company. And you were very much measured by the strength of your ideas, not your title. And, and that spoke to me. And that's why I joined Expedia. I had another job with a competitor in Europe uh, called eBookers because we'd sold Mr. Jet to eBookers. But I just felt that the people I'd met at Expedia when I was trying to sell Mr. Jet, I was just really blown away by them. So I'm very sort of intellectually curious as to what it would be like to work with a bunch of super smart people who would keep pushing you. And I think it's always easier when you join a company when it's young, if you can walk and chew gum at the same time, then they give you more responsibility. That's what happened to me. So I think not being afraid, daring to do things, not being too corporate, but also uh, I think for us at Expedia at the time, it was important to be able to deal with chaos, but, but create structure. That was very much expected. And, and that's something that I think I'm very comfortable with. There are some people who love chaos, but they keep on being chaotic. And there are some people who need a structure. I think the real trick of what I think I've been successful at, and also the people that I try to look for when I hire people are people who can cope with chaos, but who can create structure. Very well said. Maybe you can take a specific example of what you're most proud of in terms of your accomplishment in your time at Expedia. I'm proud of the, the teams I built at Expedia. The people I hired, they, they were amazing people. And it's very gratifying when you see some of the people that I interviewed and, and picked to the company. You see them rise from fairly junior positions to go on and become great leaders, run very large teams and large P&Ls and build amazing product. It's gratifying when even after you've left a company and you, you still keep in touch with many of those people and they become friends. It sounds like your superpower is really in identifying, developing great talent. And I think the core of any startup's life is the ability to attract, develop, and retain really good talent. So I would love to understand a bit more on your philosophy. First in hiring, what do you look for when you hire? What kind of questions do you ask in interviews to find that type of person that can grow with a role and become a great leader in their own right. 
I'm very passionate about the whole HR area. One of the most important things I do is interview people, develop people, coach people. That's a really good use of my time, especially as the teams get bigger. It's less about what I do personally. It's more about how can I get the teams to do things, even if I'm not in the room. One of the things I've learned is you have to be aware of your biases. In my case, because I'm a pretty high energy person, I tend to have an extremely large blind spot when it comes to high energy people or people who are intellectually very stimulating. So I will meet a person and if they have a lot of energy or have exciting ideas about I don't know, quantum physics, I I can sort of fall in love with them. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's going to be amazing working with this person. And that can be very dangerous because I've learned that where I've made hiring mistakes, it's very often when somebody is in that area because I I just become less rigorous in my interview because I just like to hang with these people. And and that shouldn't be how, how you hire people. And I've also learned that you can be low energy and extremely capable of delivering stuff. So number one is beware of your biases. So what I do is I keep notes of all my interviews and I have for over 10 years. And in an interview, I have to always find something I really like about the candidate. And I have to find something I am concerned about the candidate. And that's my rule. I can't go into an interview and thinking, well, this is going to be amazing. And, and then I have to find the dark side of the moon. And equally, if the interview starts really poorly, I need to find the redeeming thing. So I've truly given the candidate a chance and truly given me as an employer a chance to understand what the candidate is all about. I tend to ask questions which are less about hypotheticals and more about what people have done. And I try to dig in and ask for examples, what are you working on right now? And give me an example of how you handle a conflict. And I try to go for the detail because I think it's in the detail that people have to be very accurate about what they're doing. And I I believe it gives a much better answer than, than if you ask hypotheticals. What you said about the biases is something that I have struggled with as well. And probably a lot of people, especially first-time entrepreneurs, face. One thing you said is be aware of the biases. Second is try to find something that's really positive, but also something that is of concern. Are there other ways that you can overcome that? Is there any other practices that you employ in your recruiting practices to try and be consistent in how you hire? The note-keeping thing for me and writing my own notes of the interview and the good and bad is a good way to minimize your bias, I find, because you then have to write it down. And I know that I can come back to the notes afterwards. And I started doing it because I realized, you know, when am I getting right? When am I getting wrong? And then I realized I didn't have the notes from pen and paper. So being able to go back, I know there's going to be a record. So I know that, oh, I don't want to look foolish in front of myself in, in the future, looking back at these notes. It's my trick, but it forces me to be, I believe, more objective, less objective in an interview situation. That's really good advice. What is your philosophy on sourcing the candidates to fill a role? You know, you've done it in China, you've done it in so many different uh, roles that you've had. Do you you typically get a recruiting agency and look for people with industry experience? Do you look within your own network? I I use a variety of things uh, depending on the role in the country. I use LinkedIn a lot. I try to sort of always look for who do I know or who do I know that might know somebody And that's been pretty good. A couple of the people we have in the team now are at the senior level are from LinkedIn. And of course, my network in travel is pretty good. And it should be pretty good by now, given I've spent 100 dog years plus in in the industry. And then depending on the role in the country, we we also use headhunters. But obviously, what I want to do over time is to get us as a team better at using referrals. So we do that with the team as well. If somebody refers a candidate that gets hired, 
we're trying to push much more for being inclusive these days. It's an, an easy thing you can do as a leader that I learned from my previous job was make sure that in the interview panel you have uh, mixed genders, but also make sure that if you can, you push for having a diverse candidate pool if you're using a recruiting agency so that you don't just get five guys, but three guys and two women. In some areas like product and tech, that's just harder because there's not as many women in the field if you look at the intake, but you can still push for it. And, and that over time can lead to more balanced and diverse teams. So once you've hired these people, how do you build a high performance culture within any of these businesses that you've been in? Do you have tips and advice on how to build an accountable high performance culture? I believe in something called situational leadership, which is you shouldn't apply one type of leadership to all the teams or to even the same individual or the same team over life cycle in terms of if you're facing a problem. I used to be much more sort of a, well, here's how I lead. Let's go charge. <laughs> Let's take that hill. I've learned that sometimes I'm not naturally a micromanager. I sort of don't really like doing that, but occasionally it's my job to go in and micromanage. And so I'm pushing myself to adapt to the situation where depending on how ready the team is in a specific situation to adapt my style, it can be from telling to selling to more participating, or then ultimately to delegating. There's kind of four phases around that. I try not to get too theoretical about it. I do it more implicitly these days, but there are some times when if I have a very high performing team on a task they're very comfortable with, I let them get on with it. I think it's extremely important as a leader that you allow the teams to make mistakes, not mistakes that will cost the company its life. But if you want to build accountability, it's important that you allow the team to make a decision, even if you don't agree with it occasionally, and find out what the consequences are of that decision. I also believe in accountability. So I don't want anybody to do anything for me. You should do it because it's the right thing for the business. We all work for a common goal in the business. So if I've been clear as a leader in terms of what the vision is and what we're trying to do for the business, then your job is to try to hit the goals or to deliver towards that business, not towards me. I think if you can build that into an organization, into a startup, that's extremely valuable because then people will speak up if they don't agree with you. It's, it's dangerous if you get a culture where people are afraid to disagree. So you want to have a good, healthy debate within the team. But as a leader, you need to set the vision very clearly. As you know, this podcast is for entrepreneurs, by entrepreneurs. You've done this cycle of building, growing teams, turning around companies so many times. What advice would you give to people listening to this podcast on building good teams? I've had the smallest company. When I was running Mr. Jet, I think we were 12 people and we had to figure out how to pay the airlines and pay the bills every month. And we delayed the electricity bill in order to be able to pay, pay staff. And I have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs. And I also know that I'm more of an intrapreneur myself than an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is, it's a specific breed. I think you interviewed Stefan Ekberg at Travel Start. I mean, he's an incredible entrepreneur and that's not a skill set I have. What I have is, is more of a skill set when it gets to the next phase, I'm pretty good at picking those teams and, and building those teams. It starts with a vision, so being clear on what the company should be doing. The second thing that is important is to have a clear structure where different individuals have different responsibilities and then letting people get on with that. I think sometimes what you see is in, in smaller companies with entrepreneurs, it's, it's a bit like 10-year-olds playing football. Everybody's running after the ball all the time as opposed to playing in their different positions. And I, and I believe that having a bit of a structure and people sticking to the position that they're in that helps to scale teams. I think that's something that maybe entrepreneurs should think about carefully. 
We've talked about having a vision and building and growing teams. What about in the specific instances where you're going through tough times, when there's downturns, business isn't going good, which again, every entrepreneur faces? How do you motivate and keep your employees engaged and productive? Any tips on that? I've had the privilege of working for Dara, who, who now runs Uber, and, and he had a very good philosophy, which was when times were tough, he was actually kinder to the teams. And when times were good, he was tougher on the teams. He said, well, when times are good, that's when people tend to get a bit lazy. You, you tend to take your eye off the ball and you don't become as good a manager. And then, of course, when times are tough, you usually beat yourself up because things are not going as well as you should. And, and so what I try to do is, is follow that advice and communicate as much as possible, which is true in good and bad times, but it's even more important in bad times to just spend time with the team, both formally, whether it be formal sessions, but also informally, and just talk to people. During the pandemic, during the first type of lockdown, we had a bunch of people working super hard. And thanks to Microsoft Teams, it was pretty easy to reach out. I got recommendations from 30 or so people that had done something outstanding for the company. And I just pinged them. And most of the people had never had a one-on-one with me. It was just super fun. Some people were working in their caravan in the backyard without heating and the, the Wi-Fi barely reaching from the house. And it got me an opportunity to just reach out and ask them how they were doing and not necessarily about the business, but could be about their dog or their partner. I think those human touch points are easy to do and they can mean a lot to people. I love that. And that actually brings me very nicely to a ways where you currently are the group CEO. Was it just before the pandemic that you joined Aways? Well, it was in 2018. So we had a good year and a half before the pandemic really hit us. Let's go back to 2018. You joined Aways. It's a PE-backed company, very different from your previous experiences. What did you have to do differently when you joined Aways? What was your 30, 60, 90-day plan when you joined Aways? I think the most important thing is, is you have to get to know all your stakeholders when you take a job. It was a bit weird coming into a company when, when you come in at the top because I didn't know anybody. So my first day at work, I showed up at the London office and there hadn't even been communication that I was joining. I hadn't met anybody during the interview process because I'd only met with the uh, sponsors, Platinum Equity. So when you come in as a complete outsider and at the top where you basically, by definition, you don't have any colleague, it's all about trying to get out there and get to know the company as quickly as possible. So going to as many offices as I could as quickly as possible, getting to meet as many of the teams across Europe as quickly as possible. And then, of course, also understanding what the owners wanted to do with this company, because a private equity company is a company that, you know, they, they tend to hold it for a shorter period of time. They're not going to hold it for decades. It's a sort of five-year-ish, plus minus X couple of years, uh, depending on the, the type of fund that they have. So in this case, very much a growth story. So a company that had been part of the Wyndham Group, a side business for Wyndham. And of course, when Platinum bought it, they wanted to turbo boost the, the, the growth and brought in a team and sort of me leading that team to do that. I assume at the stage that you came into a ways, it's a mature business and you probably have conflicting priorities between maximizing revenue, maximizing profits, maximizing market share, maximizing wallet share. How did you determine the priorities and sequencing of these for a ways? Joining a, a private equity-backed uh, company is in one way easy because a lot of the thesis has already been done by the owners in terms of the, there were a bunch of costs we knew we could cut. My job was more on how do we deliver the growth. And in this case, we had a, a clear thesis around accelerating the acquisition properties. Uh, so we basically want to have more holiday homes under management. And then, of course, you have to grow demand with it. And growing the demand side requires an investment into product and technology because you have to upgrade the websites, the, the mobile product, et cetera. 
that's where we needed to hire a team because technology was called IT at a ways before I joined and it reported to the CFO. We had some very talented individuals, but it wasn't treated as a priority. I mean, I immediately changed that. We created the product division. We um, started hiring and, and product and tech, and we have fundamentally upgraded that whole team. And, and, and that's something we needed to do because the way you grow today is by having a superb product and you get a superb product by having an incredible team building that. And that is something you have to do in-house. And I'm very proud that we've really turned a, a corner on that. And, and as any entrepreneur will know, who you pick for your product and tech team, that is extremely, extremely important. Most entrepreneurs will probably be the chief product officer themselves these days. You have to be very skilled in that area. It's not like, oh, I'm the CEO, I run the PL and somebody else does product and technology. I'm not a technologist myself, I don't code, but I have to be able to lead technology or hire people who do it, but I'll be very, very engaged on that side. It's not something I delegate and just kind of walk away and don't look at. I'm extremely participative and involved in all of our product roadmap and, and even architectural decisions, whether it be moving stuff to the cloud, et cetera. You cannot lead today a business if you don't understand if you're not involved in technology. You just won't be, be able to be a good leader. I think that's absolutely right. Technology permeates everything you do today. Let's talk a little bit about COVID, which you touched upon earlier. So you had a year and a half, you were on your way to setting a plan in motion based on meeting people and understanding what Aways was doing, where the industry was heading. And then COVID hit. And really, there was a lot of uncertainty on when it was going to end, how it was going to end, what was going to happen. How did you navigate that uncertainty as a leader? And then how did you bring your team along? We understood very early on that this was going to be a, a major thing. Now, we do what even an entrepreneur would do. Like we stopped all payments to everybody. Let's not pay Google. Let's not pay the rent. I mean, we paid salaries, but we, we stopped all payments as a PE-backed company. We have a lot of debt on our balance sheet, so we knew that we had to be able to pay the lenders should it come to that. I think we got that right. What we didn't get right was when things opened up, they opened up much more quickly than we had anticipated. So we put a bunch of people on furlough, et cetera, and we, had, we were running kind of a skeleton crew, and we were doing meetings several times a day, looking at all the scenarios. We were just on Zoom or on Teams constantly. And then, of course, things open up. It was just being very hands-on. One of the things I did as a leader is I made sure that I tried never to look worried or tired, even if I was. So I, I always took some time to, in the mornings, I, I tried to get some exercise done, just taking care of myself, because I knew that the team was going to need a lot of energy for a prolonged period of time. And I've learned that as a leader, people read off not just how you speak, but the, your body language, everything gets analyzed. And if I look worried or if I look distressed, everybody gets worried. So I try to just make a very conscious decision to look calm, smile, not rush meetings, speak calmly, and try to be as encouraging and positive whilst being realistic to the team as possible. And I do think that as a leader, you have that opportunity to set the tone and it's very important to set the right tone. Have you ever thought about starting your own business, Henrik? You've had so much experience in this. Why have you not started something on your own? I think what I realized when I ran a small company back in the days of Mr. Jet was the 10 people show was not really me. It's not about how many people, but if there's a bit there and there's a few more resources, I just tend to get more excited about the next phase. And when I lived in San Francisco, it was almost like a badge of shame that you work for a company, but you're not the founder. But I think there's some people who are incredible founders. And some people are founders who then can stick with a company and actually grow the company into something bigger as well. I think my, my talent is what I get excited about is less the super initial phase. And I get much more excited about when there's a structure there and I can come in and, and improve it. 
Yeah, as one of my earlier guests had said to me, for every role, you need to figure out whether you need a builder who needs to figure out things or whether you need a scaler, somebody who knows how to take something that's working and then scale it. And they are usually very different people, very different skill set. So you definitely sound like the person who loves to scale and grow things uh, more than the initial phase. Henrik, we're almost at the end of the podcast. I was wondering, is there anything else I should have asked about this incredible career that you've had that you think would be worth sharing for the audience of this podcast? When you look at somebody's career, it's almost like, oh, that was a straight line and they went on and they run something big. To me, there's been many more lateral moves and I've really been focused on trying to learn new things and trying to work with great people. That's always been the, the guiding principle. And if you do that and you keep learning new things, then eventually, if you work hard, et cetera, then, then I think you get the opportunities to, to run something bigger. I think that people sometimes look at, well, I'm running a PL of a million. So if I can run a PL of 10 million, that'll be better. Like, no, I think if you run in one area, one million, try to go sideways. I think for, for me, it's when I'd done the supply side when I was contracting hotels at Expedia. I then got the chance to run Asia that was running a PL, but actually Asia was smaller in terms of people and size of the PL than, than what I was doing in Europe. So it was a, in one way a step backwards, but it opened up a whole new opportunity. And then when I ran the private label division at Expedia, that again was, I would say, a lateral move, not a sort of step up. And then when I went to the US, again, I was running a consumer brand, which I hadn't done. So again, it was smaller than running the, the previous job. So there was a number of sidestep moves there, but I learned a new skill. And I think even for entrepreneurs, as you do things, so try to develop yourself, try to make sure you keep learning and you're in the company of people, whether you hire them or work with them or you're with very smart people. As long as you're learning, I, I think that is really the key and that will set you up for future success. I think, Hendrik, that's solid advice. And I wish someone had given me that advice when I was early in my career, because you're right. You think the only way to really develop your career is to be going up and up and up. And that's when you know you're doing it right. But now that I look back, it's not about necessarily the titles and the levels as much as it is getting different types of experiences under your belt that will then eventually get you to where you need to go. And one thing I would add to that is people tend to think that, well, well, that was a great opportunity. You got to go to Asia. Well, you know, when we moved to Asia, that was a pretty big move. When that opportunity presents itself, it usually comes with some hair on it. It's messy and you have to go for it. And when you look back, you go like, wow, that was a great move. With hindsight, it looks easy. So when opportunities present themselves, you have to leap and you have to be willing to take risks. That's a great way to end the formal part of the podcast. And Henrik, now I have my fun part. I call the rapid round. And I'd like to get to know you a bit better. And it usually starts with what's your favorite book, a book or maybe two books that made real impact on you as a person or as an entrepreneur that you would like to share? There's so many good ones. I am a big fan of Steven Pinker and sort of the Better Angels of Our Nature. That was a, a great book. It's all around like how psychology works and how we are inherently good and how actually society has improved over the last millennia. But we tend to focus on all the bad things. So the huge Stephen Pinker fan. In terms of fiction, I am a big fan of Swedish Nobel laureate called Salman Lagerlöf, who wrote a book called The Story of Justa Berling, which is about a man who, again, kind of explores life and takes a number of, of risks and goes out to sort of build a life for himself. What's the name of that book again? Justa Bergling's Story. What about a productivity tool or tip? Switch up your notifications, people. Just turn them all off. 
there is no point to be notified. And I just don't know why people are spending so much time on email. Everybody gets hundreds of emails a day. Who, who cares? How many important emails do you get a day? Nobody gets more than five. Nobody writes more than three important emails a day. So spend time doing that. Think about how you're using your time and turn the no notifications off. Your outbooks is not your to-do list. You do need to clear your inbox and maybe something important. Do you have a specific time when you do it? When I'm in meetings, I'm in the meeting. I think as a leader, you can set the tone. So I try to set the tone of I'm here. This is time that's important to me. I would rather shorten the time of the meeting and be fully engaged than have everybody sit and do emails on the side and spend the hour. I tend to look at emails a couple of times a day and I'll go in and, and clear it. I hate email chains going back and forth. I just tell the team to pick up the phone, set up a meeting. We can clear this. It's much faster to just talk it through and you get a much better solution usually as well. And what's your favorite European city? It would be London. I love London. I think it's messy. It's multicultural. It's a world city. It's got history. It's got culture. I, I think it's got all these wonderful parks. London's become my adopted city. And so it's probably my favorite city in the world. Nice. And my last question, what's a favorite quote? It could be your quote or it could be someone else's quote that you live by or you say to yourself and to your teams. My favorite quote would be from Mark Twain, which is travel is fatal to narrow-mindedness, bigotry and prejudice. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Henrik, for being on this podcast. And I hope you have a lovely holiday. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And I think there's so much insights and nuggets of gold in it that I'm looking forward to sharing it with the rest of the community. Great. Many thanks, Anita. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep it.